0: Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. My guest today is Chief Dana Teja Tram of the self-governed Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation. Located in the village of Old Crow in northern Yukon, Canada, Chief Dana blew my mind with his wealth of indigenous wisdom gained from an intimate fidelity with the land as teacher. So I now give you my heart-lifting discussion with Vuntut Gwich'in Chief, Dana Tija Tram. Great to see you. He was 12. Would you mind painting a picture for me a day in the life of what Old Crow is?
1: So my father who has been going to Old Crow since the 80s, Uh, he's from Germany, but I like the way that he put it. He said, the first thing that you do when you get off the plane in Old Crow our village is you take your watch off Mm. because you no longer need it anymore. Old Crow or teach it is a small community. It's a village of 250 people tucked away between the Crow mountain and the confluence of where the Crow River meets the Porcupine River on a small little area of land, 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle and 60 miles east of the Alaska border with no highways or road contact. It is the only fly-in remote village in the Yukon Territory and we are the most Northwest settlement in Canada. The village got its name from Chief Crow May I Walk We had traditionally been residing in an area called Rampart House, which we were forced to move from when Alaska was purchased. So we were basically pushed out of our village and we were suffering uh, from from waves of tuberculosis at that time. And Chief Chrome, I walk, it was his fishing camp and he told everyone, come come to my camp. The caribou cross the river. There are moose all over the salmon come right here. And so a lot of people moved over there. So what you'll see, if you go up the Crow mountain, you can see for 50 miles and you will see a huge expanse of land stretching over like land, like a snake moving in between the lakes and a huge ridge of mountains. Mm -hmm. You can see the, the, uh, The British mountains to your north and as well as out to the east uh, you see the whole mountain ranges stretching right around. So it is an ancient land at the bottom of an ancient ancient lake bed and this area was not glaciated during the last Beringia period. So there were a lot of animals around in this area. So you'll see a lot of Uh, fossils along the riverside. Um, But I think what's even more interesting is our people, respectively, are living fossils in this area as well. And we still carry stories of our interactions with those animals. So the land is certainly one aspect of it, but it's not just 3D. When you meet our elders, it becomes four dimensional and you can see through the mountains, to the different times that were there and the different animals from giant sloths to giant beavers, uh, as well as the woolly mammoth. We still know where to find their remains to this day.
0: Wow, that's powerful. What's so entranced me about even having this conversation today, Chief Dana, is that importance of holding on to ancient truths that the world can benefit from, you know? It's all centered around story, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. I I heard you speaking at a fireside chat through the University of Washington a couple months ago and I couldn't break my stare because it was like one rich story after another about the wisdom of the land as teacher. Perhaps the biggie for me, which I just heard, I was like, wow. The spiritual connection to the porcupine caribou. Why is that so important for all of us?
1: Well, see, I see. I appreciate the question. And just before I reach into uh, the answer, I just want to make sure that this exchange of information and everyone who listens understands what's actually taking place here. Mm-hmm. And just very quickly, you know, I, I love the guidance. From our elders and one thing that really made me think is our elders spoke about the future quite a bit Hmm. but it was I guess you could call it prophecy but it's more science-based because they could look at the invisible relationships that everything represented from plants to animals and so they looked at what affected those relationships so they could see how they could position themselves and maneuver themselves to capitalize on a way that strengthened the plants and the animals around them as well. Mm. But they said that in the future, we would come into very hard times. And they said those in the South are going to come to us as well, and that we have to help them. Mm. So I only lay that to say that if anything I may say strikes the bell of truth in any of the listeners, it is not me who is giving information, it's not mine to give. This information is like a salmon that's been in the ocean and has fought its way for a very long time up the river currents of this world to populate their minds. So I believe that my elders and the knowledge our land holds was never ours, but Mm -hmm. is the birthright of all people. It's just right now in the very uh, sudden shift in technologies and society Um, we are now having these discussions over these formats opposed Mm -hmm. to on the land in the camps Mm -hmm. with one another. So that being said, the story I think is a good place to start is, there is archeological evidence and a dig about within 40 kilometers from our village in an area called Bluefish Caves. This shows archeological evidence of human uh, activity, There was an ungulate jawbone, a four-legged creature, four-legged like moose or horse, sorry. And it was, uh, it had obvious tool markings on its jaw, which showed human presence. And this carbon dates to about 25,000 years ago. So once corroborated, um, it will be uh, newly minted as the oldest presence of human beings in the Americas. Right now, uh, it being a a 16-year-old girl found in the Yucatan Peninsula, carbon dating to about 12,500 years ago, just to give you a picture. So our stories go back even farther than this. And what they tell us is that when we first came to this area, the first peoples that came to the Yukon area, or as we know it as Chugaihan, we noticed the caribou and we observed them. And they kind of taught us how to move along the land as well. And mm-hmm. we followed them from the Yukon all the way into northeast Alaska to an area we now know as today as the sacred place where life begins. Contrasted very much by modern day society where the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, Section 1002, designates this area, as we know it as Gwandai Gutlit. they designated it as the 1002 lands, um, which has to do with um, possible development and seismic activity. So right off the bat, two very contrasted ways of quantifying these areas. But what we had observed is when they went into this area, which was their calving grounds, we saw the importance of their cycle. We knew about the importance of our sustainable relationship and our life with one another. Mm-hmm. And it is said that our people went into this area, and we sat down with uh, that's I with caribou. And in this sitting with them, we had a discussion, and it was there that the Gwich'in man traded half of his heart with a half of the heart of the caribou. And we did this so that in this way, we would always be connected with one another. We would always know where one another was, and we would always be there to look after one another. So this story shows us, and it breaks a lot of barriers that animals are not below humans, that we are brothers and sisters with the muskrat, the moose, even bugs. You know, we're not in a hierarchy. actually we all depend on one another for our collective survival. And so it was in this way that we identified the caribou as our life source, the lifeblood of our nation, the Gwich'in nation, which stretches from Northeast Alaska through Northern Yukon and into the NWT. And I think what's important for a lot of the viewers to understand as well is this far up in the Arctic, I tell you, you don't have a lot of time for romanticism. I mean, it is beautiful up there, but it is also deadly if you don't know what you're doing. It's almost impossible for a single human being to survive by themselves. You need partnerships because you're constantly, constantly working. But the truth is, is that our area is actually very, very rich this area in the Yukon, we have uh the only migratory moose species in the world that I know of that migrate from Alaska in, back into the Yukon. We have moose, lots of muskrats, salmon, whitefish, caribou, uh, lynx, marten, uh, even squirrels, and, and thousands and thousands of birds. So it's actually very nutrient-rich. But it's not easy it's not like living on the coastline where most human settlements were where you could grab tacit muscles and you know mm. those kinds of proteins so it's it's a wonderfully rich area but you have to work hard and work smart to get in front of those nutrients and those proteins interesting
0: the preservation of our ecosystem is Completely economically, personally, and even politically, all connected to the preservation of that natural migration of those caribou, but also giving space to and having communion with, as you have talked about your people having with those animals, why that is such an epicenter to ecological health of just our planet in general. Oh, very much so. <laughs> would, you like, would you like me to give some examples of it? Absolutely,
1: yes. Well, um, I will use both science and as well as our traditional knowledge. But if we look over into science, um, we've really gone through a very large uh, change in uh, modern colonial society. This really started with the forefathers of what they call mechanized philosophy with Galileo, uh, Descartes, uh, even sir isaac newton and if you look at these individuals they were very religious mm. but when it came to the crafting their works they very much and intentionally so wanted to separate the mechanics of the world from mysticism and people some people say that uh this mechanized philosophy there are some quotes where they actually went to destroy the mystic And they were from very spiritual times, right? So this is kind of a movement uh, away from this, a a kind of opposition or a form of growth or transcendence. But where this is really common and why I bring it up now is because today we work with these ideas of objectivity and empiricism. Um, And empiricism is basically if two uh, individuals can go through an experiment and come to the same uh output if they have the same result then basically that's empirical truth right objectivity you know that one is not influenced by another thing and and we know both of those to be wrong now uh quantum physics is showing us past Planck's constant that actually just by observing something we affect the universe so right at that example. And I know it's a bit extreme, but if you bear with me, let's go into some of the scientific implications and some of the poetic metaphors that they represent. Right now, if we are to exhale our breath, you can actually measure the amounts of argon in an exhalation. And due to the mechanics and the formulas which gases diffuse, I could simply mathematically deduce That one exhalation will take 10 hours to dissipate evenly in the room I'm in. It'll take 10 years to dissipate evenly across the world. So your one exhalation goes out into the world. And what happens? The plants breathe in the carbon monoxide and they emit oxygen and you breathe that in again. And all the air on the earth has never left the earth. And we don't get new air coming in. <laughs> it's this balance between the plants breathing and you breathing. So you're quite literally still breathing the air of your ancestors. So that's a, a, an incredible thought. But where the kind of uh, the supersymmetry of this, which took me a, a little while to, to get to, is, well, for instance, you know, my, my little niece, we were skinning a muskrat one day. And I told her, this muskrat is your cousin. And she started laughing. She said, no, it's not. And I said, yes. I said, look at the muscles. You have muscles too. Look at the bones. You have bones too. And it has eyes like you do. And I tried to teach her, you have to understand that your cousin, this muskrat, carried these things over to you. And that's a way of speaking about evolution. And in the gestation from inception to a fetus, we go through the whole entire evolutionary cycle in nine months. Within our brain are the layers like a fish brain with a reptile brain, a bird brain, a dog brain, a monkey brain, a human brain. It's, the evolution is captured in our whole entire bodies and way of being. And I find it really beautiful that there is 70% water on the planet, Well, your body is 70% water as well. And in the over quantification in the struggle for science to compartmentalize and to label everything in the world as if we live in a digital world, well it's actually <laughs> right. more it's it's more analogous, it's superfluous, yes. and things yes. influence one another and there is no clean dissection of this is that and and this is the other on our scale, it certainly looks like that, but Actually, when we look at the earth, look at what we do to our bodies, the way we pollute our bodies and the attitude that we've taken towards the earth. What happens to the earth is what happens to our bodies Mm, and same psychologically what we're willing to do to our bodies. We're also willing to do to the earth. So there's really, and and that's a quick version, but these Mm. parallels all exist there for us to see. The only problem is, and this is a concept of my own, I call it the language before words, that the earth, the whole universe is speaking to us. It's just not speaking to us in English.
0: Oh, I love that. I wrote this down from what you said in this fireside chat. Nature is our ultimate teacher and how nothing the white man has invented is as advanced as what nature does without us.
1: No, certainly so. And, and just to set the context a little bit, um, although we may speak about uh, white people or the white man, he and we are brothers. We're brothers with all races, which we know scientifically don't exist. There are no races, no. but it's still alive and it's still a stereotypical tool that, that we use. Mm-hmm. But it, this idea, <clears throat> you know, even in Gwich'in history, we had some really terrible people in our history, like old E who murdered so many people and expanded our territory. He was like the Gwich'in Genghis Khan. Hmm. But what I'm trying to get at is it's not so much like the white person, our white brother is, it was an idea. Yes. An idea that they adopted that they were separate from nature or had dominion over it. Really that, that set, this this pathway and this movement away from nature in the sense that it was something that was theirs at their disposal Mm. whereas a lot of indigenous peoples we saw as we belonging to the earth Mm. not the other way around and what's really important and very subtle Mm. something that I often take for granted because you know I've read into a lot of psychology, sociology from a young age. I just found it interesting for some reason. But one thing we cannot take for granted is intelligence is one thing. But how you contextualize that intelligence can make it a medicine or a poison. And so what is the context of our intelligences and our systems and our way of being? And one thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that with the Indigenous peoples, like my people, for instance, our culture lived through us in the passing of stories from one person to the other. Mm -hmm. How I see that happening a lot in modern day society is that you're reading from a book, you're reading from textbooks or storybooks. You know, people read the Anne Frank story and, and they read all of these things, but It's still a bit removed and it's removed from your heart. And as an example, my grandmother in Germany, I got to visit her in about 2007 before she had passed. And me and my grandmother, uh, she was in her eighties. We sat down and had a beer together one afternoon in Germany. And she began to tell me about surviving the war, World War II. And she told me about when the British bombed Lubeck. And at 19 years old, she stood outside of her house while the entire block was on fire, while her neighbors and people she had grown up with were running out of their houses on fire and rolling around in puddles on the street. And she was in shock. And she looked at all of this carnage, hearing bombs going off, and the only thing she could ask was, why? Why is my house standing? Why am I alive? And I couldn't help it, but hearing the story of my grandmother, I, I, I began to cry. And what was really incredible was that I'd studied World War II before in school. I can tell you about, you know, Italian support and about the rise of Adolf Hitler and about the Blitzkrieg and and all these different things. But that was just information. It was, I guess you could say, intelligence because I had these models in my mind of what took place. Mm -hmm. But when I heard from my grandmother and when my story was a part of this, It moved me in such a large way. And that's what's so, yeah, and I think that's what's powerful about the oral tradition and the oral history of our people is when you connect with your grandmother, when your family tells you, you become a part of this and you are woven into a greater entity, a larger organism. You are a cell in an ancient being, and that gives you so much power but if you just read about these things superficially in books it's right. not a part of your story and you often wonder why you have to learn about this stuff mm-hmm. and this is this is acknowledging human basic psychology and i'm not saying that you know human psychology is perfect in fact we we can get sucked into a lot of negative forms of thinking and ideas that don't serve us
0: mm-hmm.
1: what i'm what i'm saying is that I, in my observation, um, traditional ways of knowing and being and the oral tradition are much healthier and inclusive into yeah. human psychology than forcing you know, 30, 50 kids into a classroom under fluorescent lights and waiting for a bell to ring. Mm-hmm. It's just not conducive to the entirety of how we learn the entirety of our emotional disposition. And, and that goes back to what I was saying before with mechanized philosophy, as if you could just strip human emotion from knowledge and then that's supposed to make you smarter. Right. Like it, it's, I, I can see where people are coming from when you strive for objectivity. And look, those things are good. You know, objectivity is good, but mm-hmm. it's perhaps it's not as achievable as we had really thought in this journey in science um, in the past few hundred
0: years. I immediately think of boxes and lines that we draw even in our own territories and say, this is my land, this is this state, this is this territory, I govern this, you govern that. Everything you just said reminded me again of something you said about the elders in your community taking students out on the land get the students on the land with the elders and then leave them alone.
1: Certainly. So, and, uh, there's a lot of rife pickings from, from what you had said. And, um, I will certainly touch on the students, but I would just like to speak and elaborate a little bit about your keen observation around the lines. Hmm. Um, I think that's, that symbol, the line and what it represents I think there's another dimension to that symbol and its representation that, that people take for granted. You know, what's really interesting about the circle and the line, we all know that Indigenous peoples move in, in circles, right? There's, we, we, we always use that circle as an analogy for life, for nature, for all these things. Where in this world can you point to any natural occurring straight line? It simply doesn't exist. You will not find a 90 degree angle in nature anywhere. It doesn't exist, but you will (laughs) find circles. There is nothing more ungodly than the straight line. It represents an unnatural um, departure from the uh, real mathematics uh, embedded and expressed through nature. And what's interesting about that is when you live through the circle and you live through the line, they are very stark different pathways. You know, when you looked at the beginning of real European technology, like if they were building bridges or building boats, they would be using nails and forcing wood together and mm-hmm. measuring it. And it was really forced and manipulated. Whereas when indigenous peoples were building bridges, they would weave vines together So indigenous peoples were about about steering natural technology, natural Mm. things that would serve them, whereas Europeans were forcing nature to serve them. So, yeah. So those are two completely different pathways. And yeah. And but it also goes to our life. If you look at life as if it's a line and you just began and then one day you will just end. I mean, a line does nothing. A line does not, it, you can't divide anything, but only when you create a circle. Now you have an outside and an inside. Now, yeah. you're, now you're working with something. But also the circle is really existentially pleasing because our people believe that we've always been here, whether we're in the form of a person or not, that we cannot be removed and the land is is where we flow from where our life is where our spirit is and so it adds and it calms you down because even when you're passing Mm. you're not dying you know you're you're moving into another life into another stage of life and that's Mm. really reassuring because there's nothing scarier than than death right but if you look at it as another doorway to another form of being opposing to shutting a door and no longer being one of them is going to provide you with a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear (laughs) while another one turns you into a seed from which a mighty spiritual oak can bloom from. And so one of them disempowers you. The other really does empower you. So So how, yeah. And how this lends itself to our children is Let's look at, for instance, the Gwich'in language is highly endangered right now. We maybe have 20 fluent speakers and um, it's it's a really difficult language to learn as well. I have heard that it is one of the most difficult languages in North America to learn. Um, But if we took, let's say, the modern day approach, we would be uh, getting together consultants and putting together a really onerous and heavy curriculum with different (laughs) modules and all these things we have to walk speakers through. But that's not where our language came from. That's not where the logic of the language um, is really ascertained. It was, Mm -hmm. it came from the land. So we could put all of that money and do all of this stuff and get all of these consultants or we could take our youth put them out on the land with our elders and let the language happen naturally. It's way more efficient. It's cheaper uh, and it's actually the the real context from, from where it comes. So there's a big difference for instance, when you have a huge government like the Canadian government or international bodies like the World Health Organization, when they're looking at issues they've created a list and they're trying to check off boxes. Okay, we've done this, we've done this, we've done that. That's how they're solving issues. So you can see from a Canadian minister, they're saying, okay, we have to give them all of this money, but to give them that money, we need to see curriculums. We need to see that they're able to deliver programs. So right off the bat, you have fundamentally approached the issue from the wrong wrong projection, from the wrong perspective. And it's really funny because it's this big, terrible relationship with trust, right? Because they're giving us money, they need that security that we are issuing the money in the way in which satisfies their checklists and their goals. And funny enough, ultimately, and well, sad in the in the end of the day, that's what's going to kill our opportunities uh, for the language to really thrive. So, so. Really, a lot of Indigenous peoples and myself, I'm painfully aware of the, how diametrically opposed our systems seem to be. But what's really interesting, and I think that we're coming to a time that we're really primed for, is I really want to make something clear, is that I've heard some people speak who have anxiety about not being connected to the land about, let's say, living in the inner city of Toronto, and they're saying, you know, I hear what you're saying, but how do I connect to the land? How do I have this connection, you know? And I want to make something really clear that no modern day people or someone hearing this who's living in a skyscraper in Hong Kong or in the inner city of Toronto should feel guilty about the culture and the system that you inherited. Mm -hmm. Because if change is going to happen, it's Best to get into the heart of this mm. matter and change it from the inside out. We need you as our partners. And again, the knowledge that I speak of is not mine to capitalize on. It's it's your birthright as well. So our systems are not opposed. In fact, this is the time where we truly, as we as the indigenous peoples have been waiting, one hundred and fifty years in this country to exchange our ideas because your economies and your governmental systems and your law systems, you know, they, they work to a certain degree and they do what they're meant to do. It's just that they need to be, their tools is what I'm saying. And I really see that indigenous values and principles can help inform those tools. For instance, if we want to make meaningful progress on climate change, get Indigenous peoples at your legislative tables, at your economic tables, and our ideas will help steer the country's systems towards that balance with the land. Because we already have it. We have it in our communities. And the incredible things that we're doing with education, that we're doing with money, you, you should see um, these indigenous hotbeds, or as my friend calls it a Petri dish of <laughs> experiments that we're, ah. we're doing with modern day systems and hopefully all Canadians and peoples can benefit from it. But I guess at the end of the day, what I'm really trying to say is that we're not, our ideas are not opposed to one another. We just haven't found the right table to make that mixture a reality because indigenous peoples in this country have been trying to affect the culture for centuries, but we have only been provided negotiation tables and courtrooms. And that's a terrible way to affect a culture, you can't. And when we're only 5% of the population of Canada, you know, we're not an election winner either. Um, so we're put in a very difficult um, position But um, nothing is more galvanizing than being thwarted or affronted by an enemy, you know, that, that brings people together. And we need to look at climate change. You know, if, if, for instance, if this was a Hollywood movie, this would be the time in the movie where there's a montage and everyone starts working together and, Hey, we found these partnerships and, you know, we're going to overcome everything. And it, it warrants it. So really, our question that lies before all of us right now is are we going to be realistic about the issues that face us and are we going to approach these issues with from a a place of power a place Hmm. of empowerment that we can do this that we will do this and and from there we find our synergies together
0: as you say a textbook or reading an article is one thing but then actually living, breathing in the air and experiencing the effects that your people are facing with the terminal illness that is climate change. I mean, you even spoke about in that fireside chat that you've never met any indigenous peoples that have ever been denying of climate change.
1: Quite simply because indigenous peoples believe in um really staying close to the bosom of the land Mm. we find our the breadth of our life and those so so what is it that makes us fills us with power as humans you know that we like to feel powerful and and love and we find that in being on the land the labor and working so hard to hunt Uh, to capture the geese or the ducks and and hunt the moose. And then we work with that meat and that meat represents feeding our families, giving to elders. And so it's this huge relationship, right? And so being a part of all of that, it's not easy, you know, and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's, it's not fun, but it's Mm -hmm. so incredibly rewarding. So when you're out on the land and you keep doing that throughout your life, but not just your life, you're doing it with an elder as well who is out there their whole life and they tell you about what they've seen and how things have changed. And then you're starting to make observations and you're starting to see that the weather is really all over the place. That last year we had a huge, huge snow dump and this year there's no snow at all. And now the rivers are starting to become unstable. Um, people on skidoos are starting to go through the ice in times where the ice should be and it should be safe to travel. So you start seeing all these changes and they're multiplying and they're getting stronger. They are undeniable. And so indigenous peoples living with the land as very porous in their experiences are seeing all of these changes. And then you just add that layer of their grandparents. It's incredible. You know, some of our elders were talking about climate change in 1985 They were saying that there's incredible changes coming and uh, from what they're seeing already and that these are going to be accelerating. I mean, and this is coming from a quote unquote Bush Indian, you know, without, Mm -hmm. without high school or university courses, our people saw this coming a long time ago.
0: By spending time with the land. And seeing and observing and feeling these changes, yes. At the beginning, even of our conversation, as you said, you desire to help. You desire for us to come to the center. Like you said, in that Hollywood movie, like we're all coming to the center of the table. We're going, okay, what are we going to do now? It just seems like this onerous, unreachable task. And I feel like we're just falling. We're falling. We're falling. And we don't know when we're going to land, but it's going to hurt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that, that question. And Um, you know, one
1: of my elders told me I was going through a very difficult time and the elder told me, he said, don't give up. He said, when you're out on that land right now, it's like you're snowshoeing up mountain. You can't give up. You can't turn around. You have to keep going. And he said, if you give up now, you're going to, you're going to start giving up in the future. You have to keep going. There are points and stories among my people of starvation. You wouldn't believe the feats that some of our people accomplished in feeding one another. And when we were in in a real tough position, but the other side of that is is in sociology, they say that there is no way to quantify as even what happens in one day in an entire city. There's just Mm -hmm. too much variables. There's too much variation um, the intent to chart something like that is, is impossible. And really what I want to get to as well is that what is the empowerment of people? And I think that's a lot of what our conversation has been hinging around. Um, are people empowered? And just quickly, I don't think that modern day society is really built to empower people. For instance, your only connection to power is A, through your wallet, through what kind of vehicle you drive what job you have, what kind of schooling you took. And those are all external things. They're, they're things that you pursue. It's not a part of who you are or your identity. You're not yeah. rewarded for those things. It's yeah. all external things that you're chasing. So you're constantly questioning yourself. What is my work? Oh, well, if I can get this university degree, then everybody will see that I am useful, that I do have value, and I'll know and I'll prove it to myself, right? But those externalities and those pursuit of them are inherently disempowering. So, you know, here's another quick example. When I went to COP25 over the International Climate Change Conference around the operationalization or the implementation of the Paris Accord, I got extremely heartbroken and became despondent and dejected when I saw what was taking place. And really what was happening was uh, Middle Eastern countries and China and Russia banded together at the negotiation tables and they said, nope, not even gonna discuss human rights. That is diametrically opposed to our systems. We will not even entertain that conversation. So I could see down the line what that meant for my people. If human rights are not part of the Paris Accord, then we really don't have a lot of leverage in, in climate change. And then I'm already seeing it. And so all this stuff piled up on me. And this whole entire negotiation just became a show. It was a stage. And I may have had a front seat, but it became a rude circus. And I, it broke my heart. But luckily enough, the next day I bounced back by realizing I as an individual... I'm not going to give an international negotiator my power to decide upon the future of my people for me. My people will do this together. Every neighborhood should be having their own COP25. Every municipality should be having their own COP25. Everyone should be doing their own part. The people have all the power. If every single person went to the bank today and withdrew their money, the entire economic system would collapse. If every single person did not believe in a law and a jury would not rule on it, that that law would have to be removed. If nobody voted, the political system, or if the, all the people voted for, you know, a person. What I'm trying to say here is that the people have all the power in the world, but do they know that? And so here's the other side. When you leave on a journey, Like, you know, I I took off and I lived out in the bush for about a month uh, a few years ago. And, you know, you can't be 100% that you're going to make it. You know, your skidoo might break down. All these different things might happen. Uh, You get really hurt out there. So, you know, you, you can mitigate those things. But what I'm trying to say is that you have your best intentions and you just move because that's what life dictates. It's not safe. But you have to do this travel you have to make these movements so all of this to say we have a destination we have to get to and i completely hear you are we going to make it well we have no other choice and now is the time where we bank on this energy because at the end of the day i'll tell you one way that i put it um in speaking with some of our people i tell them look we have to work now to develop the tools that that future generation needs. Because the children in our community today, they are going to be making very important decisions. And the decisions are only gonna get heavier and heavier as time goes by. And I told them, we cannot make those decisions for them. We have to provide them the best tools and information we can and have faith that they'll make those good decisions. So just imagine right now what a 16-year-old kid feels when they wake up every day and they understand the totality of climate change. I've even heard some kids on national radio say they don't even want to go to school anymore because what's the point if the whole house is going to go up in flames? So imagine what these kids are struggling with, what they're dealing with. But here's the key. And here's how we unlock the power that's in us inherently. We have to get over the denial because this is happening, whether we like it or not. Yeah. We have to get through the anger. We have to get over the bartering and we need to come to a place of acceptance. And once we truly accept this terminal diagnosis is the only place that we can come to it from power. And that's really where we will create the foundation for individuals and communities to become very empowered. And I mean, it's, it's just inherent in their nature. I mean, we see what's happening, for instance, in the United States and um, you know, that's why we're, I'm very happy. One of the reasons in Canada, we don't see major political scandals or even major scandals on the market, all of the rest. But if individuals, for instance, in the United States or even in Canada, we have the power to band together as communities. We could make our own banks or credit unions, our own worker unions. Like we we have a lot of affluence and a lot of power. It's just, I don't think that we understand those tools and we don't understand our own nature as, um, as an animal as well as a civilian, right? And we live in a very complex structure, but, It doesn't matter how complex things are. It's actually the simplicity of an intention that supersedes complexities. And you don't have to understand all of them inside and out. But if you are certain and if you are driven by your grandchildren's future and what you want them to inherit, you take that simple want and that simple intention and go out into the system
0: and those complexities will begin serving you. Wow. It is the almighty dollar that is driving all of those boxes to check and all those elections to have to put all those people in power so that they can preserve their place in power and then not really bring true change to what needs to be changed. The word inwardness comes to my mind. It's this external facade that keeps Mm -hmm. us from inwardness, inward development, Mm -hmm. and inward growth that, to me, can only ultimately be had in silence and space and nature with the land and letting that speak truth to us because, as you said, we've exhaled and inhaled that same oxygen that is just reciprocally moving and speaking and breathing upon all of us.
1: No. And that's, that's a really important point. And it reminds me of a discussion I had with a random person uh, on the street. And uh, we were talking, I was reading a lot on the Aztecan empire at that hmm. time. And uh, especially around the city of Tino Chin on Lake Titicaca, which is an, ex- an incredible example In the year 1491, it was the most highly populated, the most architecturally beautiful and complex city in the entire world. You know, during a time in in London, England, where people were dumping their waste out of a window, these people were diverting water flow to run through nobles' houses. They actually had plumbing in 1491. And this is a city of, you know, Indians, right? So anyways, the point was, is that I was telling him that they probably were happier people back then, and he told me he said, "No way, we are way more advanced today. We have technology. I way we are happier now than we were then." And I told him, "I'm I'm not convinced. You know, depression levels uh, going through the roof. These new kinds of mental illnesses, and you know, Man. even serial yeah, even serial murder can be conducive because it's changed." throughout um, our society as well. So it has some interesting uh, um, placements or, or, or uh, landmarks that show changes in, in psychology as well. And, but basically what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't matter. Technology doesn't really matter. Money doesn't really matter. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: happiness, happiness matters. And where does happiness come from? Happiness comes from two things, having a purpose and creating a legacy of accomplishments Mm. when you have purpose and you have created accomplishments you're really driven you feel good about yourself but if you have not accomplished anything and if there's nothing worse than having no purpose and what's really crazy about that is you know in in modern day society our our purposes and our accomplishments for the most part they serve the society as a whole i mean Let's just, you know, there's not a, a whole lot of vibrant careers in the art industry, for instance. And that really shows where, as a society, we, we put our, um, our principles and, and where we place, you know, what we value in, in a society. And it's re- that's a really interesting aspect. But just to accelerate to get to my point, if we talk about modern day society as having these facades, if you will, Mm -hmm. There's something really important. Psychology tells us that an individual will do anything they can, or Carl Jung writes, not to see himself in the mirror, not to look into that mirror and see ourselves for who we truly, truly are. And that is the dark side of us as well as the light. So we, because it's so scary what we're capable of and what we have to reckon with, that we will distract ourselves and we've really done a, a good job of that in, in today's society where you can move through it without really having to contemplate uh, your life um, yeah. or, you know, there's just a lot of crutches and canes that you can use. But the interesting thing is that if people feel like our society is largely a facade, that brings us to two points. One of them is a societal, a sociological um, idea known as hypernormalization. And what that basically means is like a boiling a frog, right? What mm. are we as a group willing to normalize? You know, I think we're now moving away like with the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the Me Too movement. We're saying that no, we're, together as a society, we're not going to normalize the degradation of women in the workplace or for um, non-white people in society. But remember at a certain time that was normalized and people were telling each other no it's okay because of this and not and right. normalized yeah. but the other side is if this society and where we are today in in society it's actually telling us more about us as individuals so it's telling us about this the society we created the values that are inherent in our culture and what we're willing to normalize on mass. But I do wanna bring it back to that point of power that um, really people need to understand that more powerful than any military, any weapon or any politician is an idea that's time has come. And I really personally feel like there's the landscape of our countries are ready for a forest fire. And I think a lot of people are primed and and looking for um some really good conduits for that energy i just hope that it's yes. not wasted on riots and and burning storefronts and picket lines yeah. we need to get into policy legislation and economics and drive those changes from there because and i use this example a lot we've got to remember the the big love movement in in the 60s you know if you're going to san francisco wear flowers in your hair. And, you know, really quickly, I was, I was getting a cab ride to the airport in San Francisco and my cab driver was there during that time. And I couldn't believe it. I just, I I had to ask him all these questions. What was it like? What was happening? What did it feel like? And then, and then I came to my last question, what happened? Where did it go?
0: Mm. And he said,
1: he said, everybody got a haircut and bought a suit and got a job. And, we have to remember that these people it was a huge movement across the country and they were going to change the world with their love but nothing happened after it and the reason why is because unbeknownst to these young people it was very self-indulgent they moved away from society and they explored all of this wonderful art and music and it was just playing jazz with life and questioning society but They never brought anything back for academia. They never brought any consideration back for the policy makers. We got a lot of good music out of it, but Mm -hmm. there wasn't a big change in politics, legislation and economics. And that's we cannot afford that same mistake now. And we have to get into these things and humanize them again.
0: Oh, so good. Do you have some sort of Vuntut Gwich'in wisdom story or blessing or just something that you would love to share and bring us to a resolution to to move forward and really ponder that change and inwardness that we all have the power to act upon?
1: Yeah, um, and there's so many. It's hard (laughs) to choose from, but I'll, I'll give you two which kind of Perfect. surmises our discussion. Um, I, was, I was on a boat and I was going upriver with uh, the late Georgie Moses who was an incredible elder who took me under his wing and he'd always take me out on the land and he taught me so so much and um, our people talk about a lot of different things. They talk about far into the future, far into the past and they actually talk about um, I guess you could call it magic, if you will. Um, so there's there's just a lot of things that pull you into a lot of these stories. And some of them are just stories, right? Like yeah. they are just stories to teach yeah. lessons. And, but So there's a lot of different layers. But what I really love is about the elders and the stories is they'll only say it once. That's it. And That's it. yeah, so you really hang on their words. And actually... I've even heard other elders say this, that they've only truly understood what elders told them now that they're elders. It took them Mm. their whole life to really contemplate these, these jewels of the mind to extract the true beauty and values out of it. But, but I have two quick ones for you. So I'm on the river and I'm headed up the river with this elder and we're passing this Creek. And there was about a three-year-old moose standing in that Creek watching us. And the elder just passed and saw that moose and he made sure I saw it. So I looked at it and I saw the moose, but we didn't slow down. We weren't going to get it, even though it was the perfect age, right? Around three. Three is a great year. The meat is really tender and it's good. Anyway, so we get to the camp and we're packing all the stuff out of the boat. And he said, did you see that moose standing in the creek? And I looked at him. I said, yeah, I saw it. He said, you know, that moose... It's stand there my whole life, he said. And as I was bringing the stuff, I thought to myself right away, I was like, what's he talking about? That moose was only three years old. Couldn't have been standing in that creek his whole life. And what I began to unpack from that simple statement was that there was always a moose in that creek. And there's always been a moose there his entire life. And later on, he began to tell me there was an area uh, known as the Peel Watershed that the Yukon government of the day was trying to develop. And we're talking 64,000 square kilometers of just pristine land. And they wanted to open it up to mining and all of this stuff. And um, anyways, he told me, he said, you know, the people who are making these plants to develop it never even set foot out there. They don't know anything and what he was really trying to say is that look that creek if we leave that creek alone and we don't mine it there will always be a moose there and that means our family will always be fed and you know what with that moose we don't have to depend on you know a a beef farm in Alberta we don't have to depend on refrigeration and trucking systems. We don't have to depend on someone who's gonna put it on a a shelf, it does it by itself. And if you just leave it alone, you'll have the cleanest, freshest, healthiest meat that you could possibly get for for free. And you just have to leave it alone. And that's what I really took from it. And so that we have to ask ourselves as a modern day people in a modern day society, Mm how many more creeks are we willing to lose? Cause there's gotta be a number. There's only so many creeks around the world. So when is enough? Cause I haven't heard someone talk about that. You know, when, 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 are, when have we reached our limit? When can we say, okay, we're done, right? You know, right. this is as far as we're going to go. That that's an important conversation we need to have. The second was uh, there was an elder, uh, Ellen Bruce, and she was, speaking to her grandchildren, and she had told them this this, uh, old, old story among our people. But what I really wanted to show and exemplify in, in her words, to me, will echo in my bones for the rest of my life. After she had told her grandchildren this story, she told her grandchildren, she said, my babies, I am so happy that I was able to share these stories with you today. Because now that you know these stories, Your ancestors can live through you. Our community as an Indigenous people is not just localized in 2021. There are people that are still alive in our community that died hundreds of years ago. They live through our conversations and they live through us. Our community is interchronological. It moves far into the future as we think about our grandchildren to come. And it moves far, thousands, tens of thousands of years into the past. So when we juxtapose these indigenous ways of knowing these oral traditions, now we think of an individual who was born in a city, doesn't know two generations down the line from their family, doesn't know their trials and their tribulations, what they suffered, what their hopes and their dreams for them were. And what that does is it takes you away from some power because I am literally my ancestors' dream. The voice that I'm speaking to you with is not my voice. It was the voice of my ancestors that they carried to me. And it is the voice of my grandchildren in the future. So I Mm -hmm. don't speak to you with my voice. This is not my voice. And that gives me a lot of power. And that's what a lot of people today are being robbed of. And Mm -hmm. it's really, I guess, at the end of the day, Those two stories exemplify connection, connection to the future of our people, of our species and the past and where we came from and the connection to the land and how once we acknowledge and understand that connection, it feeds back to us. And in this way, we can bring balance to ourselves.
0: So good. So good. I honestly could talk to you forever about all of this. I could just keep going on and on and on. I mean, I've got plenty of questions and in the same way you probably were in San Francisco. Oh yeah. And then what happened? You know, I I definitely, (laughs) I feel that way. Chief Dana, where can I send people, people who are invigorated, galvanized, inspired by anything that, that you've spoken today? Well, The one thing here is that um,
1: I think what's most powerful is that even for my own people, we are modernizing as well and we're losing some of our traditions. And you know what? I think that's okay because change and our ability to change is what allowed us to live in such an inhospitable environment. Mm -hmm. So I only say that to those people who um, are afraid of cultural appropriation or these kinds of issues look you have dominion over your own life and you can start creating some of your own practices some of your own traditions um by you know i one thing i'm going to do is i'm actually going to uh write a a novel for the grandchildren that i will never meet so that they they know that i was there for them and so i'm starting new kinds of cycles right but to yes. create that connection, if that connection is something that you value. But the one thing is, is that you really have to educate yourself about the environment that you're in. And that means there's a lot of really great books that are coming out. Like I really recommend Charles C. Mann.
0: He I wrote- ordered it. 1491.
1: Yeah, that's I just good ordered one. that. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a bit on the academic side. It's great. I mean, there, yeah. there's um, information in there that is not in really being taught in schools yet, far from it. But he also wrote 1493, which is about the establishment of the first international economies. And then look over at some indigenous writing as well, like braiding sweetgrass, grass, um, rebuilding nations. Um, Thomas King is a really good one as well. And just remember that right now in this day and age, we have access to all forms of knowledge really right now is a really auspicious time. This is about collecting as much information as you can to build yourself and empower Mm. yourself. And even myself as an indigenous person, I am, I am half German as well, but I was raised with my people. So So I really, yeah, yeah. I I really strongly identify with my indigenous culture, but I've sat with Buddhist monks. Um, I've trained with Buddhist monks. I've, Um, I've gone and hung out with academics. I've gone to the underground and, you know, I still practice today. I I like to hang out with homeless people in the city and and just talk, just have conversations. And it's just information, information, information. And because it's, it's not always just necessarily gonna always flow from this. But the main thing is this, is that artists are the true architects of change. Politicians are the last to recognize it. You need to feed the artist and the politician in yourself. Feed all that creative and raw data and play jazz with things. Just open your mind to all these ideas. But when it comes to the politician in you, make those decisions about what you're willing to stand for. And um, the most important thing is self-empowerment because we cannot predict the decisions that we are going to have to make, but we can empower ourselves with the information to help us in any decision we may come across. So to do that, we have to start asking questions because it's not about the answer. You'll never really actually find the answer to any one question. It will lead you to more questions. And in that way, the question will become part Of the answer in and of itself and in this way and through this function you will truly be um in the seat of your mind and your heart because that is the ultimate function of a human being like back to when we were children looking at the universe in awe and asking the simple questions keep doing that be that child be that artist be that politician and wherever you're going to end up with that is, is truly where you need to be and where the world needs you to be. Because remember the world really needs the strength of your heart. That heart beating mm. in your chest right now can change so much and just feed it and let your heart feel that strength because there's so much out there that will weaken it. It's, it's, incredible. Oh, yeah. it, it's incredible. Really incredible. It's really incredible. Yeah. incredible.
0: Okay, well that, I mean, honestly, what do you say in response to that other than, wow, that is super powerful. And this conversation, Chief Dana has exceeded every expectation I ever had because I was excited. I was excited to talk to you, (laughs) but in layman's terms, this blew my mind. I really did. So that's a big thank you to you. And I hope we speak again. Yeah. And always
1: feel free to reach out in the future as well. Believe me there's some subject I could go really deep into money, into politics, into you can really go down these catacombs, but um, really I think the most beautiful thing is, is and as I walked into this conversation, my one purpose is to share and it's to mm. share information. And that's, that's it. I, I am not giving because it's not mine to give. And for anyone who received this information, if it stoked the fires of your heart and your mind, this information was always yours, and it just oh. took a while to get to you. So ah. we got to keep sharing and keep empowering one another.
0: <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening, everyone. If this spoke to you in a meaningful way, please share the love with anyone that comes to mind. For more information on the Vuntut Gwichin First Nation of the North Yukon, visit vgfn.ca. And a huge thanks to Nadine Fabi of the University of Washington, Seattle for the kind introduction. Also, you can visit my website, knittedheart.com, to hear previous episodes, investigate further resources, and hear more about my ongoing work as a filmmaker. If you like what you hear, please leave a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.